I'd invite your attention again tonight to the book of First Timothy. We are going to look at some phrases and and um, different portions of First Timothy. We're still introductory in our remarks, at least as of now. And uh, the more I tried to get into verses one through four of chapter number one, the more I was drawn back to. Um, I just took weeks where I. First thing I would do in the morning was read the six chapters, just read it. And then I found myself marking and then underlining and then highlighting different phrases, circling. And um, if I handed my Bible off to you, you would ask me, what are the red circles for? But they're obvious if you go through the pastoral epistles. What's the green highlighter about? And we'll go through a little bit of that, some things you can look forward to. Uh, from the book of First uh, Timothy, and in time, even Second Timothy and Titus. I I don't know. I I'm, I'm looking at First Tim. I want to go through all the pastoral epistles, but then again, um, there are some of the books of the Old Testament that are working in my heart, such as the book of Habakkuk, which is a very helpful book. Then the other minor prophets as well. So we'll see across time. If you don't listen good in First Timothy, I'm gonna go back through it again. First Timothy, just for sake of plugging back into and reminding you of the key verses uh, of the book of First Timothy, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, the Bible says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Paul is saying, I left you at Ephesus. We'll read that in just a moment. He said, I want to come back to Ephesus. I want to come back to you. I want to come back and see you. I want, I want you. I want you to... Be mindful of the instructions I've already given you. He says in verse number 15, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. He's left him behind, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. He's left him behind at Ephesus to tend to, to oversee, to help the church, to minister to the church in a manner as if Paul would have done it if he were there on the scene. You look at it, 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach, no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. And so we're going back to this uh, bit of an introduction, if we may. Just one brief word or two from last week. You remember the pastoral epistles to be three, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. They were all pinned down without a, uh, about a, uh, within about a year and a half of each other. We believe the order they were penned uh, were 1 Timothy, then Titus, and 2 Timothy. These are the last three of Paul's writings of his New, Test New Testament epistles. Now, some believe he penned down 13 of the 27 New Testament books. I'm convinced it's 14. The book in question is the book of Hebrews. And we even brought up how there are some, though Paul attaches his name, as was the custom, Middle Eastern custom, Oriental custom, 
If a man was to address correspondence to someone, he would put his name at the beginning, whereas in our modern culture, we sign off at the end and identify ourselves. And so Paul identifies himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, then Titus chapter 1, verse 1. And one of the reasons why I'm convinced that some have tried to question the authorship or the penmanship of these pastoral epistles is because the language has changed. He's going to deal with some doctrinal matters in 1 Timothy. For sure he will. But he's writing to a young man that meant much to him. And so there's a care, there's a concern, there's an affection that, that communicates through the writing. He's about to leave this walk of life and he's aware of it. He doesn't know that it's going to be a year and a half to two years from now when he pins down First Timothy. As far as he's concerned, it could be over the next few days. And this young man has traveled with him for some 15 years, Timothy. And he said in the book of Philippians, we'll probably just read through it next week. He said, for I have no man like-minded. Brother Ronnie and I sat down sometime back right here. And we spoke very briefly. Didn't have to speak long about it. But in our conversation, we spoke very briefly about our philosophy of ministry. And, and our philosophy of ministry is almost mirrored. I think you would agree with that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Brother Ronnie. Almost mirrored. Now, where, where we don't mirror, he's wrong about a couple of items. <laughs> but when, when Paul wrote of Timothy to the church at Philippi, when he wrote of Timothy and spoke of him, he said, For I have no man like-minded. No one has the same philosophy of ministry just like I do, except him. And to me, that's a grand compliment. It's, uh, it's a great compliment. And you remember how we talked about last week how Paul took some unknowns? Timothy, who otherwise was unknown, Paul pulled him into his world. And Timothy had a platform. Because a preacher 30 years his senior loved him. Though he was timid and bashful and backward, Paul took interest in him and didn't turn him loose. To the point that, now no doubt, no doubt, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he had Timothy in mind there. But you remember when he said, stand, having done all to stand? withstand against the wiles of the devil, stand. And when it come time for Timothy to stand at the end of his life, he did that, and it cost him his life. And after Paul was taken out of this walk of life, when the going got tough, he could probably hear those words to him over and again in his mind where the old preacher said to him, Son, you've got to go right back now. You've got to stand. You've got to prepare again. There's no opting out of this thing. There's no place to stop now. And he didn't stop, did he? Paul died a martyr for Christ, and so did Timothy. Die a martyr for Christ. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Timothy was left at Ephesus. Titus was sent to Crete. And I aim to say just a little about that. 
not a lot, a little about that. But these letters, to me, they're very revealing. They always have been. Uh, first of all, the, the love that Paul had for these two men in the ministry. Just another reminder. Chapter number 1 of 1 Timothy. Look at verse number 2. Watch this. Paul had no natural-born sons. He had no sons after the flesh. Chapter 1, verse number 2. Unto Timothy he is writing, and he calls him my own son in the faith. Second Timothy, chapter number 1. He'll do it again. Verse number 2. To Timothy he calls him here my dearly beloved son. And even to Titus, he writes to him, Titus chapter 1, verse number 4. To Titus, my own son, after the common faith. And I think we all can testify. We've had fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters in the faith. And that's something that only God can put together. The love that Paul had for the two men are revealed in these pastoral epistles. The love that Paul had for these churches they would pastor, these congregations they would tend to administer to. The love he had for these, of course, are evident as well. No two churches are alike, are they? No two. I remember a conversation in the back hallway. It's been a number of years ago. Somebody was talking about uh, the old-time way and, and that sort of thing and, and really was saying some things that uh, made sense and then made no sense. And so I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, I said, far as I'm concerned, I can name eight churches right now, just right off the cuff in Pontotoc County, that would claim to be of the old-time way. And I, every one of us are different. So what defines us being uh, the old-time way? And Well, he got stuttering on me. He couldn't say anything. And I'm given in that direction myself. Every church is different. The burden of each church is the same, and yet we're different, are we not? Certainly we are. God has given us a heart for missions around here, and you've accepted that. We've accepted that well. Not every church has that. I'm grateful for the burden that God has increased in our hearts uh, here at Charity. Now, again, Paul, uh, he leaves Timothy at Ephesus. Titus goes to the island of Crete, which was a rather large island. Again, here in 1 Timothy 1, in verse number 3, the Bible says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. So Paul has influenced Timothy's going to or remaining in Ephesus while he goes on, he says in verse number 3, when I went into Macedonia. And then he's going to give him instruction as to what he is to do. Now, at the time that Paul encouraged and, and, and um, challenged Timothy to stay at Ephesus and take charge of the church there, God was using and blessing the church greatly. You remember the, you remember the, the burden of missions endeavor, endeavors through the years. You remember it started in Jerusalem, didn't it? The fires were blazing hot in Jerusalem and coming out of Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 are saved. Some few days later, some short time later, some 5,000 are saved. And out of that, there's records of even where the Ethiopian was saved while traveling back home from Jerusalem, and he would go and begin a work. And there were works that were started there. God blessed, and then it moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. You remember we learned about Antioch when Barnabas goes and gets Saul of Tarsus and brings him to Antioch. 
And then we begin seeing where there are five prophets and teachers at Antioch. They're listed in Acts 13, verse number 1. And two of those five are Barnabas and Saul, whom the Holy Spirit called from among them and sent them out into mission work. You remember that? They go on three missionary journeys. Paul does three missionary journeys and returns back, uh, always returns back to his church that he's sent out of. And then from Antioch, things begin to, uh, begin to wane a bit. The missionary endeavors were centered out of Ephesus at that point. You remember even in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7, the church uh, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, you remember he commended them for some things. He said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And part of that leaving off that they had left off were those, uh, those, uh, their labors for Christ in reaching souls. And so from Ephesus then, uh, the movement went to Constantinople, which is located in modern-day Turkey. It was a base for large missionary endeavors and sending missionaries out into the known part of the world for a long time. And then formalism crept in, crept in. And men were worried more about themselves than they were about the souls of men. And so the fire began to go out in Constantinople and then moved to Rome. Tradition began to take over. And tradition took over and again men were more concerned about their traditions than they were for the scriptures, someone has said the last words of any dying church is, are, we've never done it that way before. So they were more interested in preserving their traditions. And God seemed to move on. From Rome, the large missionary uh, concentration moved to Germany. And missions and missionaries began to be sent out from Germany to different parts of the world. And of course, if you know anything about church history in Germany, there was the higher textual criticism that began to move in. And, and, and the challenge with that is, a lot of times, is men begin to look at the Bible like you would any other book, and that's highly dangerous. And so they lost their zeal, their desire to see souls saved. And it seems that God packed up and moved away. And we know God doesn't pack and move anywhere. You know what I'm saying, I hope. From Germany, the movement seemed to move to England. At one time, missionaries were sent out around the world from England. Livingston that you read about, the great explorer and missionary uh, to the continent of Africa. Uh, if you go into Westminster Abbey, the first grave in the floor that you come to is the tomb of the unknown soldier. It's the most decorated tomb in the floor of the abbey. The next one is that of David Livingston. It will move you. Um, engraved on the covering of the grave of the, the tomb of the unknown soldier are the words to this unknown soldier of our country who did good by his God and good by his country is this grave dedicated. And then you'll move over to Livingston's grave. From England to the United States of America, for years, the United States of America has sent more missionaries around the globe than any other country. And now missionaries are beginning to come to the United States of America. They're receiving literature from the United States. And now they're being sent here. I wonder what God will do. 
Titus was sent to Crete. Titus chapter number 1 and verse number 5, of course, bears that out. The Bible says, For this cause left I in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Paul writes about a couple of items in this verse. Uh, organization was needed in the churches in the island of Crete. He says some things evidently are out of order. He says in verse number 5, For this cause left I in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order things that are wanting. In other words, things that are lacking. Crete, uh, Crete is the largest of the Greek isles. It's 170 miles long at its widest point. It is 35 miles wide at its most narrow point, uh, 12 miles at its most narrow point. Organization was needed. We don't know if it was a free-for-all or just what it was. But we do know it needed to be pulled together. Titus was the man for the job. And then number two, he says in this verse, that elders were needed in the churches of the island of Crete. He writes in verse number five again, For this cause left I in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. Here it comes. And, and ordain elders in every city. So there's more than one city on the island. We know this, when he sends him there, when he leaves him there, he says, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So it's been a lot of debate over the last 20 years. It's come to the forefront in the last probably five. This debate over um, should a pastor, one man pastor of the church, should there be a plurality of elders and you read of situations where you can scotch for both arguments, right? I mentioned the, uh, the angel of the church at Ephesus being written to in Revelation 2. The angel of the church at Smyrna, Thyatira, etc. comes from Angelos or Angelos, the messenger, the pastor. Write this. Let him read this before the congregation. And so the definite article, the, leads to one pastor. And yet Paul... In Acts chapter 20 and verse number 17, he had left Ephesus. He'd been with them uh, for some years, and so he wants to speak with them again from this congregation. Acts 20 verse 17 says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And we know Timothy pastored at Ephesus. We know Tychicus pastored at Ephesus. We know John pastored at Ephesus. And evidently they pastored and had men to work with them. Handedly, just hand in hand, there in the church at, uh, at uh, Ephesus. So here's the question. Which model is right? Because there's been a lot of debate. Last five years or so, it's really become public. And across the country, there are many going to this plurality of elders model. So which one's right? The one pastor model or the plurality of elders model? And my answer is yes. Every church is different. And I'm going to say something about that. And um, usually I let everybody else do the talking. Before I say anything in some of these meetings in different places, I'm going to say something here about it. But some churches function just fine with a pastor, one man. And our churches, especially in our rural areas, there's no way you could have had a plurality of men lead. There's just no way you could have had it. Um, and one man has served, and he has served well. Some of my heroes through the years have been men that have pastored 
20 people and 30 people, 15 people. Worked on an assembly line somewhere through the week. Took off to preach a funeral of a church member. Nobody knew them. Nobody gave them a platform for anything. God called them. And then finally sent them into a group of people to love them and preach to them and pastor them. And they did that until they took their last breath. Some churches do just fine with a pastor and deacons. And they manage fine. Then there are some churches that function just fine with a pastor and a group of spirit-filled men called elders surrounding him in order to help him in the ministry of the church. Now here, um, I remember when I approached the men, the first time I approached the men before I ever stood in front of the church about deacons and our need for deacons. And we needed and we need deacons, and they have served our church well. Those who are active are serving our church well. It always does good, and I'll say something more about this in just a moment. For a pastor to have leadership that will surround him and will support him, it does not mean that he is infallible, nor that they are. But the church is not a one-man show. And you've heard me say this before recently. Accountability, there's nothing wrong with that. Not one thing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, if I could lean on Brother Ronnie and I's conversation, I referred to up here around this front pew. Um, we talked about a couple of different matters, and I said, Brother Ronnie, I, I really don't know. As a matter of fact, Sunday evening after we left here, we were in a different place. I said to him for the second time, I'm willing to learn. You get more men than one together. Iron sharpeneth iron. There may be a little something I can learn from you, and there may be a little something you can learn from me. And that doesn't hurt one thing. As a matter of fact, it'll help the whole body of the church. Wouldn't it be a sad representation if we had seven men, as we find in Acts chapter number 6, and all seven of them from the same family serving on a deacon body? You understand what I'm saying? Then you know what's going to transpire after that eventually. Personal observations. I hear a lot of folk talk about these matters. And again, I've been, I've been hearing this, been in on conversations for the last 20 years. Every church needs a pastor, right? That's God's will. Every church needs a pastor. I have two or three churches I've tried to uh, speak with committees. One, um, about 35 minutes from our house, Phoebe Baptist Church, Brother Terry Rhodes. Brother Terry is... Um, he has short-term memory loss. He has tried for over a year now to resign. The church won't let him. Brother Terry was driving through about a year and a half ago. was driving through the community on a Saturday. He drove by the church, and there's a big crowd of people there, and he wondered, what in the world are all those people doing at the church? And he remembered, there's a wedding, and I'm supposed to be preaching it. He and Rosemary live... Um, a little piece away from the church, so he's always kept a suit or coat and tie and all that. And he said, so I ran, turned around, ran right back down to the pastorium where he had a study, got a sport coat. He said, I had khaki pants on, sport coat and a tie, 
in a spare Bible I kept in my study, and he said, I went next door and ad-libbed and got through the wedding. He can't remember. You can talk to him about um, anything, and 15 minutes later you can ask him about it. He can't remember anything. And that church needs a pastor, and he's tired, and he needs to step down. Every church needs a pastor. Every church needs a pastor who's willing to live and die with decisions. Every, every church needs a pastor who's not mixed up about things, one who preaches the Word of God, one who is convinced of his call. Every church needs a pastor that doesn't jump on every carnival act that blows through town. Every church needs a pastor that just get the word and stay there. And that be his main focus. And to touch on what I was touching on just a moment ago, every pastor needs men surrounding him in leadership. I think one thing that does, at least in my line of thinking, is it eliminates the abuse found a lot of times under the guise of pastoral authority. Now, I've known some men that have abused their position and almost whipped people into submission and called it pastoral authority and that had no Bible for their fit they were throwing. And spirit-filled men surrounding a pastor would help to eliminate a lot of that. I'll tell you something else it would do. If we believe in Bible preaching, it would revive expository preaching. Nehemiah 8 is a good example of what it means to preach the Word. Ezra and the others stood. They stood. and Then they gave the understanding. They gathered as one man and said to Ezra, said, bring the book. That was the request. And as they read the truth and explained the truth to them, they said, Amen, Amen. And they stood as long as the truth was being preached and read. And Lord knows we need a revival of expository preaching. We all know the cliches, but cliches don't help anybody. Makes a bunch of religious nuts out of us. Run around saying something have no idea what we're saying. Why we say it? Spirit-filled men surrounding a pastor in leadership. Tell you something else it'll do. It'll, at least in my thinking, it will prevent man-centered churches and ministries. I often call it celebrityism. There's no place for that. Let me tell you something else it might do. I talk to preachers every day. You've heard me say that. I don't know what the times over the years. I talk to preachers nearly every day of my life, most of them discouraged. And you know what spirit-filled men surrounding a pastor will do for that pastor? It probably will keep him from low places of discouragement, resigning prematurely. I have stated through the years, I don't know, at the times I have said to some man, whether he be older same age group or younger than me, you can always resign. If there be a question mark and you're simply discouraged, resign next week. Resign in two weeks. And if, if they just had some men around them, every, every church, just as sure as Jerusalem needed James and Ephesus, Ephesus needed Tychicus or 
and, and needed Timothy and needed John. Just as sure as uh, Smyrna needed Polycarp. And First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida needed Elmer Towns and then Jerry Vines. And Bellevue Baptist in Cordova, Tennessee needed Adrian Rogers and R.G. Lee and now Steve Gaines. Every church needs a pastor. Not only reveals these pastoral epistles, Paul's love for these two men and Paul's love for those churches, but also reveals the love Paul had for the Lord Jesus Christ over and again, over and again. I've pointed this out when referring to past, uh, the Pauline epistles, but over and again, Paul rings the bell. He doesn't write very much until he mentions Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, our Lord, God, God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, over and again. Let me show you something else that Paul gives us. Now, I've got these, um, uh, these uh, somewhat uh, marked in my Bible. Look, if you will, chapter 1, verse 11. Paul gives us these faithful and true sayings in the pastoral epistles. These faithful and true sayings. That was a, that was a, a phraseology uh, uh, used in his day, common sayings. Sayings rehearsed commonly, faithfully, truly. These that he will mention are to be rehearsed among God's people. These faithful, these true sayings rooted in the word of God. Chapter number uh, one verse number chapter number two, excuse me, verse number eleven. He writes, "This is a faithful saying. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will. He also will deny us." You look, if you will, at uh, look, if you will, at uh, that was in. Excuse me, that was Second uh, Timothy. Look at First Timothy. I'm sorry. Verse number 15, I have my Bible open to 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 and verse number 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In chapter number 3 of 1 Timothy, verse number 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Chapter number 4, verse number 9, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Then he goes on and he's going to give some personal instruction to Timothy. Now then, in 2 Timothy, verse 11, of chapter number 2, we just read that out of place. It's a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Then goes on and makes some other statements. And then in Titus chapter number 3, verse number 8, this is a faithful saying. People always looking for um, series. There's your series, the faithful sayings of Paul, reliable sayings, sayings you can anchor your faith in. They're unchanging in their nature because they're anchored in the Word of God. And then Paul over again makes appeal to the conscience. Isn't that something? The conscience. He, he talks to Timothy about his conscience, how his conscience is to be clear. Look, if you will, 1 Timothy chapter number 1, verse number 5. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Chapter 1, verse number 19, holding faith and a good conscience. 
which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Then he's going to name two of those. In verse number 20, he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you've got to lay down and sleep at night. Look at chapter 3 in verse number 9. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. In chapter number 4, he speaks about the latter times. And then he talks about those that, that will give heed to seducing spirits. In verse number 1 and verse number 2, he says, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, that's a dangerous place for a man to get to. It's an awful place for a man to get to, to get to a place he has a seared conscience. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 3, I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers. He says, with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. And then, let's see. Conscience. Chapter number 1 of Titus, verse number 15, he mentions conscience, the conscience again. Let me show you one more, then I'll close for tonight. Let me show you something else. It is paramount in the pastoral epistles, and that is doctrine. That's what's going to be taught at Ephesus and what is going to be taught at Crete. Look, if you will, back First 1 Timothy, chapter number 1, verse number 3. The Bible says, now I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Verse number 10 of the same chapter. For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Most of us somewhere in life get on health. Kick, don't we? We read everything we can get our hands on, everything we can look up. We're told a healthy diet will produce a healthy body and a healthy exercise. We'll do the same. Sound doctrine will produce a healthy believer. That's the idea. At Camp Zion, many years ago, there was a preacher that uh, if I called both these preachers' name, uh, names, one of them you would recognize, most of you. Some of you would recognize the second one. They got in one of those giving services, and folk were lined up to this side of the pulpit, pulpit across the platform. Finally, this younger preacher, he was full of, his brother Doug Jones would say, vim, um, something else, and vitality. Vim, vigor, and vitality, he used to say. And he wanted to give $20 in honor of his pastor, and this is what he said. He said, he don't believe no doctrine nor nothing. And I thought Harvey Reeves was going to have a stroke. You ought to believe doctrine. And if it ain't in the Bible, you can throw that out. Over and again, over and again, he deals with this thing of doctrine and sound doctrine. That's First Timothy chapter number 1. And then in chapter number 4, look at verse number 6. Chapter number 4, verse number 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, he says to Timothy, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith, here it is, and, and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Look at verse number 13, same chapter. He says, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Verse number 16 of the same chapter. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. He says, continue in them, for in doing this... Thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Chapter number 5, verse number 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of 
double honor, especially they who labor in the word. And here it is, doctrine, chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Verse number 3 of that chapter. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, same idea. Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, same idea. And to the doctrine, which is according to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing. And he goes on and says some more about that. Look at 2 Timothy. Now I'm about to be done. 2 Timothy, look at chapter number 1 and verse number 7. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Verse number 13 of that chapter. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Chapter number 2. He gives a little warning here. Verse number 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. 2 Timothy 3 and verse number 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Verse number 16 of that chapter. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. There it is. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Chapter number 4, verse number 2. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I think we've got to that time, don't you? Verse number 15 of that chapter. Of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. He's talking about Alexander the Copperhead. I mean, Alexander the Coppersmith from the verse before. All right, the book of Titus. There's a few of them here, and then I'm going to close. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Look, if you will, at verse 13. Some of you may be underlining these or marking these. But for God to mention doctrine in these three small epistles, the times that he does, the amount of times, it must be of paramount importance that we give heed to what this Bible teaches. Verse 13, this witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound, sound in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 1, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Verse number 2, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. Look at verse number 7 of chapter number 2. It's about three or four more of these and where doctrine and sound speech is mentioned. Verse number 7, In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. Verse number 8, Sound speech that cannot be condemned. Verse number 10, Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Then he shows the emphasis again in verse number 2. He says, teaching us that. He's going to talk to us about what ought to be taught in our lives. Good doctrine will help the church. It will condition the church. 
Good doctrine will help the preacher, and it will condition the preacher. We get asked, Brother Don Smith, Brother Bearfield, myself, quite often, how do you preach doctrinally? My response has always been the same. You preach scripturally. That means you start at verse 1. And if you don't get done, show back up next week. Put back in. If you left off at verse 3, put back in at verse 4. You'll cover the doctrines of God, the doctrines of man. You'll even cover the doctrines of Satan. You remember when we did that? In chapter 1 and chapter number 2 of the book of Job, if you went to a seminary, if you enrolled in the spring semester, eventually in your theology courses, you would take um, a course and learn about what the Bible has to say about Satan. You would go to Job 1, and you would go to Job 2. You would go to the book of Isaiah, and you would go to the book of Ezekiel, learn of the fall of Lucifer. You would learn of what he's up to. You would also learn of the fallen angels, the one-third of the heavenly host that fell with him. And some of them are chained in everlasting chains under darkness. The Greek word for that is Tartarus. They're waiting to be judged. You'd learn about that. Just start at verse 1 and then go to verse 2. Preach scripturally. Doctrine matters. Amen. Let's stand.